Hello and welcome to Three Peas in a Pod, the podcast from the team behind Partnerships Bulletin and P3 Bulletin. I'm the editor, Paul Jarvis, and with me today in the studio is Jonathan Davis, deputy editor, and Richard Threlfall, global head of infrastructure, government and healthcare at KPMG. First of all, as you know the format by now, Richard and I will have a conversation before Jonathan and I will pick out some of the main points. Hello, Richard. Thanks for joining us today. Hi, Paul. So I think what we want to talk about today really is something really you touched on when we met up and you were talking about sort of really your impatience with the ability of governments around the world to focus on some of the big things, particularly in relation to the UN's Sustainable Development Goals. So just thought it'd be a good place to start with you maybe elaborating on some of those thoughts. Paul, thank you. Look, it's really, really great to have the opportunity to to, I guess, expand on some things that I really care a great deal about. And uh, I, I, the conversation we had before Christmas was great. So let's try and give your uh, listeners a bit of a flavour of that. I mean, my starting point is, and many of uh, your listeners would have heard me say this already, the world just really isn't waking up to a combination of the climate and the social emergencies that are facing us today. We're only six and a half years away from the point at which climate change is going to drive climate warming over one and a half degrees from pre-industrial levels. Now, one and a half degrees doesn't sound very much, does it? But one and a half degrees is the point at which we start to lose control of the ability to actually bring that warming back. Potentially, that's the point at which we tip into a world in which we create a really uncertain, potentially really, really catastrophic future for our children and our grandchildren. And I just personally can't sit here watching that happen and watching institutions and organisations, particularly those in the infrastructure sector, which have such a large part to play in that, not doing absolutely everything they can to start to step up and make a change. But it's not just about climate. It's also about the social emergency. Now, some of that's triggered off climate. So one of the things that climate change is starting to cause is uh, involuntary emigration of individuals from parts of the planet that you just can't survive there any longer. And that's just going to get worse and worse. But we're also seeing this extraordinary increase uh, in inequality, wealth and income inequality. It's quite remarkable that we're getting back to the sorts of levels of inequality that were last seen more than 100 years ago at the turn of the 20th century. Uh, And, you know, you don't need to be a student of history to realise that some pretty big social upheavals came out of that. Those are the sorts of levels of inequality we're getting back to today. And I think it's creating a tinderbox in society. So you put those two things together and those are the issues of our generation. Those are the things that all of us, whatever business we're involved in, we should be focused on. But we're having a conversation here about the infrastructure and the construction sectors. And they lie right at the heart of being able to drive the solutions. The infrastructure sector is responsible for something between 70 and 80% of the world's climate, carbon emissions. Therefore, it has a big, big part in terms of tackling that. And we all know that infrastructure is, you know, the foundation of of civilization, the foundation of trade, the ability to travel, our social infrastructure, our schools, our hospitals, healthcare, and so on and so on. So infrastructure is also a big social leveller and is also a big part of being able to deal with the inequality that we're seeing in the world today. So... Given all that, why do you think there has been such kind of patchy 
focus on the UN's SDGs? I've talked about two specific sort of areas of focus. The thing I like about the SDGs is it creates this balanced scorecard of all the things that we should be doing in order to create quality of life for this and future generations. And I don't think that there is a lack of focus per se on it. In fact, I think one of the most remarkable things about the SDGs was that for the first and possibly the last time we will see, you have almost every country of the world signed up to the same set of global objectives, which is a remarkable achievement back in 2015. But it's been knocked off course, obviously, by the pandemic, by the war, particularly the war in Ukraine, the effect that that's having on energy prices, the effect that's having on food and creating a food crisis. Um, And we've just seen it in terms of the World Economic Forum's 2023 Global Risks Report, where the short-term risks, right up the top, they've got cost of living crisis. When you look out 10 years, all the top risks are the sort of environmental and social risks that I've just been referring to. So the issue really is, you know, it's in human nature that we try to deal with the things that are really affecting us today now. And it's harder to focus on the things that are really going to create a problem five years, six years, seven, ten years out from now. But if we don't get a grip on these issues now, as I say, we'll lose control of the ability to be able to solve them. It's almost a sort of it was ever this kind of problem, isn't it, that we do always tend to focus on the short term. And as you say, you know, 10 years out, the issue is environmental problems, but the issue today is cost of living. 10 years down the line, it may not be cost of living, but there'll be a good chance there'll be something else. And the environmental problems will be the, the sort of, again, on the horizon. But I mean, I don't think the landscape's entirely negative. We have seen the most extraordinary shift in attitudes over the last couple of years. You know, we, it was it was not so many years ago that we were still having an argument about whether climate change was real. I think we're a long way past that now. I think we've also quite a long way past, you know, agreeing what needs to be done. I mean, most of the technologies we need are there. It's all about pace now. It's about moving quickly enough. And that's why I think it's so important that all of us as individuals, but particularly those who lead businesses in the sector, start to regard their overriding purpose as everything that they can possibly do to face into helping to solve those climate and social emergencies. And so that brings us on nicely, I suppose, to the role of private finance, the role of private investment in infrastructure, in all the kind of technologies, as you mentioned, the technologies that are already there, in some cases waiting to be used, and where PVP-type models can fit into that. So where do you see the role of private finance So I see private finance absolutely fundamental to helping to sort of get us out of the mess that the world is in. And the reason for that is is not because of some sort of philosophical addiction to private finance rather than public. I think that uh, that debate is well stale as well. It's simply this. You referenced cost of living crisis a, a moment ago. That's obviously the squeeze on consumers and individuals. But we also know that the pandemic has created this massive squeeze on the public purse, the public money to deal with anything and everything. And the lovely thing about infrastructure is it's an investment. We are creating the assets for the future. We're creating assets that have 30, 40, 50, sometimes 120 year lives. It it doesn't actually make any sense that the burden of creating those assets should fall specifically on today's generation. And the lovely thing about private finance is that it creates a mechanism that defers some of the cost of payment for that infrastructure into future generations, where arguably quite properly some of that cost lies. So you put those two things together 
And there is both the necessity to bring private money to the table because there isn't the public money available in the scale needed in order to help face into, for example, everything that needs to be invested in renewable energy, everything that needs to be invested into turning all of our transport electric, everything that needs to be turned done in terms of, you know, taking carbon out of cement and steel, everything that needs to be done in terms of creating energy efficiency in homes. We could go on and on about all of the things that infrastructure needs to do. There isn't enough public money to do all of that stuff. So we have to bring private money to the table. But even if it wasn't a necessity, it's the right thing to do. And how do you see that progressing, really? It depends on where you are in the world as to how the politicians in particular, I think, view partnerships. And certainly, you know, we're sitting here in the UK, and that's not necessarily had a, a positive spin on it over the past decade or more. But then the US is now looking at investing using P3, as they like to call it, to deliver a lot more of investment, whether that's environmental, social, whatever it might be. Other parts of the world, again, you know, also looking at partnerships as a, as a way to get ahead. But yeah, still some sort of sticky situations in other parts of the world. Do you think that there is a, a way around some of the politics of it all? So it's always been a little bit of a political football, hasn't it? As I say, we're in a world of necessity where probably more governments rather than less recognise that if they really want to develop their economies, hopefully green development of their economies, in a sense there is there is no choice but to embrace different models for bringing private capital to the table. I think there's a little bit of a risk that we get hung up on particular models. You know, so the UK obviously had a you know particular bout of indigestion around PFI, and now we talk more broadly about PPP. But but I wouldn't even stop there. I mean, the the imperative is to bring private money into infrastructure in whatever ways you do that. And so, despite the still sort of political discomfort in the UK specifically around PPPs, actually a huge amount of our infrastructure continues to be financed through VAB-based models, through the regulated utilities, for example. And, you know, fine. I, I, I think we should, you know, find the right model, if you like, for the, for, the, for, for, for the right use. How do we make private finance coming into infrastructure more palatable politically? I think that's probably the, the, the critical question. And I think a lot of the responsibility does lie with the private sector, with private sector finances, infrastructure funds and so on and and the private companies that are for example running utilities businesses and so on we went through a period when i think some of those companies tended to regard themselves simply in the business of you know making a return for their shareholders and they somehow lost sight of the fact that they are delivering public services through public infrastructure fundamentally regardless of the fact that you know there, there's private money in it and it's not really surprising perhaps that that created a bit of a political backlash i think we are starting to rediscover for example amongst the utilities that they are they are providing a public service first and foremost and everything they do should be geared towards that and that then fits quite neatly with this broader narrative that's opened up over the last couple of years around what's called ESG, environmental, social and governance in businesses, where businesses more generally are being challenged to recognise that they don't just owe a duty of care to their shareholders, but they actually owe a duty of care to all of their stakeholders, which includes the communities in which they operate. And we've also seen, I think alongside that, a push to ensure that the procurement rules or procurement guidelines are such that it allows for much more of a focus around social good, environmental good, 
as opposed to focusing on the on the price, focusing on the cost. Do you see that change having an impact then as well on in terms of the way procurements are structured, the way that and, and the types of people who are then chosen for projects? So I think social value dimensions in procurement is a really good step, but it's only a first step to where I think we need to end up. Um, and this was a theme that I was playing out in the in the discussion with the uh, House of uh, Lords Committee before before Christmas. We tend to still primarily use financial you know cost and benefit to evaluate what projects we should do and what the you know what the best model to take that you know that procurement forward with and who the best person to appoint to do it is tends to be very financially economics driven and we need to move to a world in which there's much more balanced consideration of the environmental and social and governance factors as part of a rounded procurement approach we're not quite there yet. I think we're getting there, coming back specifically to the UK, we're getting there intellectually. So a lot of the work that's been done by the Infrastructure and Projects Authority around sort of the procurement roadmap and so on, I think the, the way that they sort of intellectually conceive the connection of infrastructure into societal outcomes is really strong. But what we haven't quite done is really then taken that down into the way in which you properly evaluate what projects you do and who's going to do them. Coming back to the energy transition in particular, what do you see the role of government versus the private sector being in that? Almost everything that we're going to do in infrastructure is going to be a partnership between the public and the private sectors. And that's regardless, in a sense, of where the source of money comes from. And if you take the energy market globally... Huge, huge parts of that are, you know, private, huge parts of that supply chain are private sector. And that supply chain uh, of all the industries in the world is facing the greatest upheaval because of the necessity of transition, because of the inevitability of rolling off the use of fossil fuels. We can have a debate about how quickly exactly that's going to happen, but ultimately we know that's where we're going because we have to. The world has to get to a place where it is all its power is being generated from renewable energy. And there's absolutely no reason in principle why we can't get to that place. It's just about how quickly we can get there. So you then take that question back to the role of the energy businesses. Well, every energy business in the world now has woken up to the fact that they have to fundamentally change their business model to take themselves away from being, for example, extractive oil and gas companies or providers of energy from coal power stations into renewable energy providers or, you know, sustainable energy, whatever that future business model is going to be. I think there's a critical role for government to be really, really clear about what the target is, what the objective is, so that the private sector then knows what it's aiming at. And part of that is about regulation to force the pace but part of it is just actually being really, really clear about what the government expects, because that's the sort of certainty that businesses want in order to be able to plan over the medium term, in order to be able to institute the, the huge changes they need in their businesses and try to minimise the risks associated with the cost of stranded assets. And you mentioned earlier your evidence of the House of Lords, the Built Environment Committee at the back end of last year. And... In that, you talked about the sustained pressure on the private investment community to focus on sustainability, net zero, all those areas. 
it seems to me that actually the public sector should be well placed to take advantage of this. So do you think that they are recognizing that, that there is this opportunity that the, the private sector is increasingly aligned towards a net zero future? For sure. I mean, in a sense, I think government, in some ways, government is no different from the position of any business in terms of the benefits that accrue to them if they really put sustainability at the heart of what they're trying to do. In other words, it it should mean being able to access finance at finer rates. Um, And we're starting to see more and more examples of that around the world. It should mean the ability to attract the best talent into your organisation because you know increasingly individuals want to work for organisations that they can see are you know supporting a positive future for our planet and society not not in the business of destroying it and from the point of view of consumers so again whether that's consumers of products or whether in the context of governments and infrastructure it's the consumer of services rail services road services energy services whatever it is Consumers, you know, increasingly are switching to sustainable services because that's what we all understand we we need to do. So government absolutely can ride that. But government is different from all other businesses because government has two additional critical levers. One is the lever of of legislation, the ability to force through, through regulation and legislation. And the other is the power of procurement, because government is such a huge buyer that when government, you know, for example, takes a decision in in this country that they're going to start to insist on, you know, building information modelling under the biggest projects or offsite construction, they start to move the whole market. And that's immensely powerful. And so given your kind of global experience, where would you say, or is there anywhere that you would say is really kind of getting it right. I know we started talking about your kind of frustrations with governments, but maybe a more positive spin might be to have a look at where you think governments are closest to getting this right and to actually investing the large amounts of money that's needed and focusing on bringing that private sector alongside them as well. You could look at examples that sit within developing markets in places like Colombia, for example, who've been really, really open to the engagement of private finance in what they're doing. You might argue more of a necessity. Clearly, one of the most vibrant markets for private sector investment in infrastructure is Australia, and that has remained hugely strong as a market for decades. But today, we're asking a more specific question, aren't we? We're asking which governments are deliberately pivoting their programmes towards green growth. And in the specific of infrastructure and private finance and green growth, I think it's quite early to call out certain governments and say they're doing it very well. Generally, for example, the Nordic countries, I think, have been very, very advanced and progressive in terms of recognising the necessity of focusing on things to combat climate change, for example. But that hasn't translated particularly in those economies into big programmes of infrastructure necessarily, because obviously they have so much of the infrastructure they already need. But you could, for example, if we take one of my pet subjects like electric vehicles, you can see how far ahead Norway is compared to any country of the world, miles and miles ahead because of recognising some years ago that it was such an imperative that they were going to do everything they could in order to create the incentives to move individuals away from petrol and diesel vehicles towards buying EV vehicles. And so that then sets the benchmark for what other countries can do, to take one particular example. 
if we talk about something like the energy generating market, I actually think the UK has done a phenomenally good job. Uh, you know, we are still the poster child for the speed with which we ramped up, particularly our offshore wind market, and because of the mechanism that we used that, of course, deliberately brought private finance into that market. And that's still the example I use all over the world of the way to do it, because in the space of something like six years, we moved a market that required almost entirely government subsidy to one that required absolutely no government subsidy. That's something that you would imagine every other country of the world would want to copy. Yes, well, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? And I think one question as well, so we've talked about geographies and where is, is doing well. I guess another question then is sectors. So do you see there being, particularly for you know, private investors, a sector of energy investment that is perhaps primed for investment? You know, could be hydrogen, could be EVs, could be something a bit different. I think the list is almost endless. I mean, from an investor point of view, it's almost it's almost obvious that there's a whole bunch of industries you don't want to be in any longer because they have a very short life ahead of them. And there's this huge, huge demand opening up still and accelerating still around all aspects of renewables, all aspects of, of digital connectivity that, for example, might you know spare us having to, to travel, all aspects of the transition in the transport infrastructure space. Uh, so everything to do with electrification of all modes, some obviously harder to reach than others. So, you know, aviation and shipping is, is still going to be a hard nut to crack. Then you look at things like hydrogen and hydrogen, I continue to think is going to be so fundamental because it is both the solution to the energy storage that you need alongside the renewable generation but it's also the fuel that can go directly into things like ships and, and heavy goods vehicles and so on. So it has that sort of dual role in terms of, in terms of our future. So I think infrastructure investors are in a sense sitting in a, in a good place because there is so much opportunity. Now, if we had an investor at this table, I think they would still say that some of those markets like hydrogen, the problem is that they are still seeing individual opportunities to invest rather than a market opening up in aggregate. And so it's quite difficult for them to commit the levels of capital they want. And there's still some uncertainty about how quickly the trajectories of those markets open up. And that's one of the areas where I think we should be, you know, asking governments to do more in order to support the sort of early development of those markets in the same way as they did with offshore wind. Just on that point, I suppose, you, know, you talk to people who are who have had a, a long history of investing in the UK people who've been through the PFI experience and a lot would, I think, say, and a lot of people do say, wouldn't it be nice if we had a program, you know, like PFI of X number of projects coming out every year, we can almost pick and choose what we want to do and go in, draw up plans on how many we're going to win every year and, and deliver like that. That's not something that we see anywhere, I don't think, in the world, really, specifically around the energy market or the so green market. Do you think that would be advantageous or do you think it's a too disparate market to really be a success? I think it would not only be advantageous, I think it's absolutely imperative that we start to get programmatic approaches off the ground. And that's because I go back to the point about pace. We don't have enough time. You know, we can't. The trouble with infrastructure is we're used to the idea that a lot of it takes 10, 15, 20 years between the point of planning and the point of delivery. We don't have 10, 15, 20 years. So we have to find ways 
of being able to bring huge swathes of solar, huge swathes of wind generation, the mass uptake of electric vehicles, not just across developed, but also developing markets. How do we do that at pace? And it has to be about programmatic approaches. It has to be about being able to get both consistent supply chains running in order to just ramp up and bring the capacity into market has to be about consistent models of procurement and it has to be procurement on the scale of programs that means that really really big checks can be brought in by sovereign wealth funds the big infrastructure investors pension funds and so on because otherwise we're just going to waste too much time doing one solution over here another solution over there and before we know it we'll wake up it'll be seven years from now and the world will be 1.5 degrees warmer and we'll be facing all sorts of problems. Yeah, absolutely. And just on the back of that last point, 1.5 degrees, seven years, can we get there? This was the big debate at COP27, wasn't it? There was this moment, I think it was in the middle of the two weeks of COP27, when suddenly the headlines were going, you know, 1.5 degrees is unattainable, sort of give up now. First, I'm a born optimist and I'm never going to give up on something, particularly something as important as this. But also, the analogy for me is this, you know, if your best friend is in the middle of a lake and drowning and you can't work out exactly how you're going to save them, do you just give up? You know, this is so important, we can't give up on it. So every single day, we just have to ask ourselves the question, how are we going to do it? We can never concede that it is not possible. And if at the end of the day, the outturn is not 1.5, 1.6, 1.7, at least by trying, we'll have avoided it being two and a half, three, four degrees, which is where we're going at the moment, the result of which will be absolutely catastrophic. Okay, well, thank you very much for that. And thank you for ending on that more optimistic note that we potentially can make it. Well, I'm concerned I've ended on the word catastrophic, which doesn't <laughs> sound quite, quite, so, quite so positive. But I really, really think that this industry is absolutely front and centre of being able to save the world. So let's get on with it. Great. Thanks very much, Richard. Thank you. Great. Well, thank you very much for that, Paul. And thanks also to Richard for delving into what is such a global issue. I think really got this sense of the scale of the problem here. But at the same time, also the opportunities that do lie for the industry that we work in. A big part of that seems to be you know, the mindset change going from the old world to the new world that we need to deliver and how that's communicated to people. So what do you get from the talk with Richard? Do you feel like that battle is won and the momentum is there or you know, there's still some work to be done? I think yeah, there's definitely still some work to be done, but at the same time, you know, looking on the positive side, there's definitely momentum. We see it time and again in the projects and stories that we find and we write about, I think. And particularly, and Richard didn't mention the USA in terms of the investment there, but the IIJA that was passed in 2021, I think just the focus of that is such that it is looking to change that mindset and create the culture, I guess, for investment that is based around not just private finance investment, but private finance investment into green and environmentally friendly infrastructure and technology. Yeah, absolutely. I think you said at one point that 
there's so much focus, global focus going into this that it's quite it's quite remarkable to have this kind of unity. But translating that into projects is is a task. And I th- I just sticking on the USA, you had IIJ and also the Inflation Reduction Act, and in that we saw some kind of wrangling between different blocks about sucking in all of the expertise around the world when it's a global problem and kind of taking some industries that are just going to flood to the USA. So coordinating that response is so vital and doing that through things like COP, which this year seemed to be a little bit more, it's not one of the major ones compared to the previous years, but it's vital in keeping up that kind of spirit of doing this together. But it's it's such a, it, like I keep saying, it's such a big task and there's so many different elements of it. That's one of the really interesting, I thought Richard was saying about the opportunities for different sectors around the world is almost limitless. You're literally changing how the entire world moves from A to B or communicates with one another. For infrastructure, I mean, this should be a great 10 years. Yeah, it's it's exciting, I think. And conversations that I've had over many months, really, with investors and others, and particularly, you know, when some of the articles I've done recently looking forward to the next 12 months and beyond, those conversations, people keep coming back to really two sectors that really excite them. And I think one is the energy transition, which in itself encompasses a huge range of things, as as you say, and as Richard was saying, you know, from EV charging to hydrogen to you know, the list goes on is almost limitless. But the other sector as well that people bring up is broadband. And while that not may not be immediately included in the sort of energy infrastructure world, Actually, as Richard said, one of the things that is changing is how we communicate with people and how we do business. And actually, we all know that you know, the pandemic made that help make that shift much quicker. Things have obviously gone back more to normal. We're doing a lot more meetings face to face now than obviously we were for the past two, three years. But the outcome is still that the technology is there and people are using it more and more to reduce their travel and that's going to have a huge impact on emissions yeah absolutely but and then also we trade kind of one problem for another and the fact that if we're all sat at home heating our homes we need more efficient heating around us and you mentioned earlier on you said doing business and changing the way we do business is vital here and and the way that businesses see themselves i thought that was a really interesting point that richard made about kind of trying to couple together growth and social responsibility and change the role which infrastructure and asset managers actually see themselves and i was talking to someone earlier this week who's in charge of a, of a major airport in the country and and they really see themselves as part of a system and a node which can affect huge change within the limitations of adding these restrictions in a way and saying we need to do things differently and that may be a margin change but if it opens up a world of opportunity afterwards then it's it makes business sense at the same time yeah definitely and it's a cultural thing as well isn't it it's about changing the culture within businesses as you know it alluded to the pfi years in the uk where for all the questions back and forth about whether companies made money, some companies, some individuals made large amounts of money out of PFI projects and 
You can argue the case that, yes, they took on a lot of the risk to do that, but certainly in some cases, the motivation was making that large amount of money, not what is the best social outcome, what is the best environmental outcome for the community. And I think that shift is something we are seeing with quite a lot of the investors that we deal with now who have social responsibility and environmental thoughts kind of at the heart really of the way they do things. Yeah, absolutely. I think we stopped recording at this point, but Richard did say we need to unlock every player in this game to really deliver the scale of solutions that we need. And I think what we can do, that's what I'm going to be thinking on on my way home today. So thank you very much, Paul. Thanks to Richard also. And uh, thanks for listening.